Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Sorry this episode is coming to you a few days late. I've been a little busy this week uh, moving offices uh, from the west end of Washington, D.C. over to LaFont Plaza, where the Urban Institute has a shiny, great new building. Um, and I've been teaching a data visualization class over at Georgetown University, so that's been taking up a bunch of my time. But I'm really excited to get this episode out to you because in it, I chat with Jessica Bellamy, who created a social enterprise that combines grassroots organizing, research, information graphics, workshops, and teaching. Uh, She named the business Grids, the Grassroots Information Design Studio, and she is located in the Midwest. And so I was really happy to chat with her. Um, I uh, saw Jessica first at the Information Plus conference uh, in Germany uh, late last year. So I will link to her talk. Uh, the video, I believe, is up. So I'll link to that. And you should definitely take a look at it because it really was uh, a really great energetic talk. So we talk about all the work that Jessica's doing and how she got started in data visualization and the sorts of things that she teaches in her workshops and her classes. Just a quick note, if you'd like to support the show, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Uh, you can donate just as little as three bucks a month, five bucks a month, um, support the show and help me continue bringing great guests uh, with pretty decent sound quality and, of course, transcripts uh, for those who uh, may not be able to listen to the show. And it also helps me support all the other things that I need uh, to make this show come to you every and every other week. You could also just support the show by sharing it on your favorite social media network or reviewing the show on your favorite podcast provider. So um, let's get to the show. This is my interview with Jessica Bellamy uh, from Grids. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to chat with you. I saw your talk at InfoPlus in Potsdam, uh, well, now a few months ago, and I unfortunately didn't, like, you were surrounded by people after your talk, so I didn't get to, to meet you in person, but um, I'm glad we're able to, to at least chat on the phone. Yeah, me too. Um, do you uh, want to talk a little bit about yourself and your background and um, the work you're doing there in, in Louisville? Absolutely. First off, did I did I say it right? Like I know there's a whole thing, right? Because it's not <laughs> yeah. it's right. It's not Louisville. It's like a little more like back of the tongue, sort of like Louisville. Right? Yeah, yeah, Louisville. Yeah. It's definitely okay. more right. lazy, but <laughs> but that's the way we pronounce it, and that's, that's right. That's right. That's how you know folks are actually from the, the city. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's how I know. <laughs> Um, so you're an info designer and you have um, your own studio and you run this um, information design studio there. So so maybe you just talk about your background and um, how you became interested in, in data visualization and, and the work you, you're doing uh, now. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess my interest arose back when I was in college. I ended up triple majoring, single minoring and doing this summa cum laude thesis because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted it to be at the cross-section of art and design and increasing cultural competency. So I was really interested in studying different methods for creating critical conversations, like dialogue that would really help people transform through uncomfortable 
issues such as race and gender politics and so forth and so on. And so I ended up majoring in Pan-African studies, graphic design, drawing, and I minored in communication. I wrote this thesis comparing all these different types of design to, to really try to figure out what was the best place to really start finding this way for, for social impact. And um, mm-hmm. after college, the funny thing was, I actually did not continue with anything artistic. I went right into going full time at this lab I was working at. at uh, during college, I worked as an undergraduate research assistant in this uh, psychology lab called the Neurodevelopmental Science Lab at the University of Louisville. And I was there for about five years. But when I graduated, they offered me what I thought was a very delightful proposal to become a research analyst there and that they would like teach me a lot of things I need to know about data collection, um, about how to work with participants, uh, administering tests. I could work with grad students and it opened my world to this kind of academic scholarly data taking sort of scope for this realm that I definitely right. hadn't been uh, as ingrained in until I started working there, and then even more so once I started working there full-time in this position. Uh, during that time period, oh, also it was very exciting to have um, uh, healthcare as a person be going from student to, you know, adulting. <laughs> it was so amazing. Right, right, I was like, yeah. what? I get healthcare with my work? <laughs> this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> you know, why, why have people not done this before? Of course people <laughs> but anyway, so I uh, went into to that, and because I still had a very strong draw to what was going on in my community and trying to find better ways to, to shape how things were evolving, at least on a local scale, I joined a lot of organizations that had opportunities for volunteering and for community organizing, organizations such as Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, which is a statewide organization, the Network Center for Community Change, and I started working within community. It wasn't until I was um, a part of one particular project in a neighborhood that I'm, I'm from called Smoketown that I really started combining a lot of these fields of study and pools of thoughts that I had developed since college. And this project was where Smoketown, which is a historically black neighborhood, uh, it was starting to see a lot of changes because there was interest in expanding the urban core. And so this historically black neighborhood was essentially going to go through a lot of bouts of gentrification because of the interested developers in the area. So Kentuckians for the Commonwealth decided to be a part of collecting the comments, the concerns, the priorities of residents who were still in this community that was rapidly changing so that they could be meshed with the way the neighborhood was evolving. And so we collected all this data. We went door to door and we knew we wanted to make a report that we would share with developers, uh, with city officials, folks like that, folks with power in the way that this neighborhood was changing. And when we created the report, the funny thing was the most powerful position for that report wasn't in the hands of the developers, actually in the hands of the residents themselves. Um, That was the first report that I started making infographics for. But I think that helped break down the staggering amount of of information from a 55 question survey, (laughs) being able to make all that content more easily digestible created this opportunity for residents to be armed with the statistics to create their own change and be the 
governing body of what their neighborhood could look like. Like the first time I ever saw someone weaponize mm-hmm. the report against a council member in a public forum, I was ecstatic to say the least. I felt so energized and like I created this powerful tool. And I was like, well, shoot, I should do this all the time. I should try to mobilize as much information and put it in the hands <laughs> of people that are affected by the data itself as often as I possibly can. So I took a leap of faith. Like I'd saved right. a little nest egg from my uh, position at the lab and started Grids, um, the grassroots information design studio. So I've had it for four years now and I have consistently worked with nonprofits, community groups, <clears throat> and um, all these really wonderful social initiatives. The majority of them have been uh, local, like within Louisville and Kentucky, but I have been a part of a few national things um, with like Cities United, uh, Resource Generation, and it's just been a wonderful journey. That's great. I want to uh, quick ask. So, did do you feel like your experience at the lab prepared you to do the data work that you needed to do in this, at least in the first social Absolutely. movement that you were working on in Smokedown? Uh, the perspective that most folks have when it comes to data, when they see uh, a data set, is their concerns are mostly around surface credibility of it. And there's not a lot of diving deep into mm. what that data says, right, based on the way that it's utilized in the survey or in your final document, how it's uh, portrayed. I was able to create more critical observations with what, um, mm-hmm. what we had collected. I, I do feel like it allowed me to just have a, a more insightful eye around how the narrative was being portrayed and what were some things that we can uh, correlate or at least like place together to begin to have more conversations about access and assets and um, the, the history of mm-hmm. uh, disenfranchisement for the neighborhood itself. Uh, and a lot of the entitlements that the community should have had that they don't based on um, neighboring neighborhoods. <laughs> Redundancy. <laughs> you're, you're right. At the same time, when you were there, as someone coming from sort of a communications and design background, did you have any frustration with the the graduate students and the senior researchers who maybe didn't have that those same education and design skills? Yeah, I, I had to make my work look more like what traditional research reports look like. If I was collecting data and or had to organize or clean data for a grad student, if it looked too well put mm. together, it was criticized. Oh, <laughs> that was weird because yeah. there's, there's yeah. a, an aesthetic yeah. Yeah. that you have to have to be taken seriously. It's just part of the respectability politics of that world. Mm. And I just had to accept it. I do appreciate being able to see yeah. data design and organization from a different perspective than just the aesthetic realm. Because I think that allowed me to focus more on the function first. Like I already know how to visualize something, you know, that's mm-hmm. going to be right. clean and easily digested by someone who is not familiar with this type of plot design or, you know what I mean? That's, that's one thing that I think is really interesting about information graphics and data visualizations is you have to realize that there is a visual literacy that comes with the way you form your chart or diagram or graph. Like if people aren't familiar with how to take in that information, it's going to be not absorbed, you know, mm-hmm. it's not going to be processed by the individual. And the, the graphs right. that I began to be just more comfortable with, um, I, I do think that opened my eyes to a lot of different diagrams that I don't think I would have typically 
felt comfortable with. Um, I think it also allowed me to become more comfortable with uh, mm-hmm. information clutter and overload because some of those, you know, massive, massive access documents and uh, programs that we had, like, cause we were using programs like salt for uh, linguistic coding. And when you look at all that data in the Excel sheet, that's ridiculously large and you're inputting it into access, which has so many different coded whatnots in it. I think it could be very easy to, to get overwhelmed mm-hmm. and daunted by that process and kind of just not want to deal with it. But I do feel very comfortable with way too much information, which (laughs) I get from clients often, you know, when folks are like, I want to make an infographic. They may not know exactly what needs to go into it. But a lot of times I get sent like a thousand different things to read and look at. And then I have to sift through to make a one page explainer. And yeah, I think it made me really (laughs) beast mode in that light. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I want to ask you about the infographics and the tools and the workshops that you do uh, as well. But before I get to that, I want to ask you about the types of projects, the work that you're doing now, the social impact work. Like, what are the sorts of community projects that you're that you're working on now or over the last four years or so, um, especially the ones that you think the information graphics that you've done and the data viz you've done have, have helped to really affect change? I think that's a thing a lot of people in the field struggle with is, you know, they want to, you know, they want to make something that, that helps people, you know, improve the world or affect change. And it, and it sounds like just from that, that first story you told of just this volunteer that you did, that you did have an impact. And I'm, and I'm curious about the sorts of things that you're doing now in terms of the different content areas and the challenges that, that different neighborhoods in Louisville are having. Absolutely. I would say um, leading up to now, the main Outside of the Smoketown project, the two main projects where I feel like there were tangible um, traction, like the distance between intention and impact is a wide chasm. And instead of just aiming at intention, the ones that actually had uh, some really great traction yeah, yeah. Uh, that was visible, but even within newspapers, or um, uh, I was the person that designed and helped put together the People's Guide to the Budget for Louisville, Kentucky. And so what the People's Guide to the Budget as a project was, was I was working uh, as a Kentuckians for the Commonwealth member, uh, and we as an economic justice team uh, within this area decided that we wanted to break down the budget because the if you look at what our city budget is, over 75% of it goes to what they call safety, and the majority of that is policing. And do I think that reflects the priorities and concerns of residents in Louisville, Kentucky? No, I don't really think so. And our affordable housing has gone down, and there's a, there's so much like housing instability in our city. Well, what about, what are, what are we actually doing for that? There's so many questions we were asking, and we were looking at this 300-some-odd page document that our city prints out every single year of where the money goes, and we realized how undigestible it was, but how that was a key to really start pushing the the right buttons for folks to be galvanized around these issues because money money affects everything, every everything socially. And so when we started deconstructing that project, mm-hmm. there was about three of us within the Economic Justice team that were like going as hard as we could on it. And then um, we were able to get a lot of folks because of the Trump administration, like actually, there were so many people that joined nonprofits and community organizing work after he became president. So it was really great. We had a lot yeah. of people to help us out with this project. But um, essentially, we created this document that uh, broke down 
three really key issues that Louisville is facing and put action items explicitly to it. And it it's a great report because it functions as a series of one-page explainers so that if you really are focused on affordable housing, there is a one-page explainer that you can use in your council meetings and so forth and so on. And what it led to was there were a few council members here in our city that started creating participatory budgets, like budgets where the neighbors, um, like the residents within their jurisdiction can allocate funding to whatever they want, right, through a process that they create. Uh, And also, because we did this, Mm -hmm. we created such a stink where folks were rallying around like, we want this to change, do something that they had to actually set a calendar for uh, release. So before the mayor didn't have to say when he would have his draft ready. We just knew that he would create the first draft of the budget. It would go to the council members. The council members would vote on it and then it would be passed. So we didn't know when the mayor would release it. And we, and if you don't know when it's going to be released and when it's going to be passed, then you don't know when you have time to intervene with your council members. And so an actual calendar was created, a timeline, which is great. So it created a lot of opportunities for community conversations right. that actually affect how our budget is shaped. Um, and the, another project that had really great traction hmm. was um, I created a new citizens voter guide for the Kentucky Refugee Ministries. It's and Kentucky Refugee Ministries partnered with uh, one other organization that also works with uh, folks that are coming into to Louisville from various different countries that are becoming citizens, uh, but want to be plugged in, right? So this guide had to have very few words, very few words, and still explain the entire process of how to register to vote, how to go and vote, how to absentee vote. At one point, um, they wanted me to also put in the difference between Republican and Democratic parties. And I was like, if we're putting few words in this, I just don't see how we can do that. But um, the great thing about that project was the opportunity to work with a lot of different types of folks. Because when you think about how you render vectors, even if it's an icon that's supposed to look like a computer, well, a computer looks completely different to someone who has this experience versus someone who has that experience. Um, and color palettes matter, right? Um, color definitely leads mm-hmm. to, it, it's connected with our, our culture. So like a cobalt blue can be a funerary color um, in some cultures, so forth and so on, like these types of nodes. And that project expanded so far that the... the the New Citizens Voter Guide was translated into 16 different languages by the, the end of the project. And um, and since then, like we're, we're working on even updated versions because, you know, that that project has been around for the last year and a half, two years, something like that. And then currently I'm doing a lot of projects that wow. have to do with yeah. public health. Um, there's a project that I'm working on with a, mm-hmm. uh, a data collection hub that is contracted with our public school system within Kentucky. And they release this report every year that has to do with key issues that affect elementary school and middle school students, anything from um, mental health, physical health, all that stuff. And what they've found out from doing this project is that some people like use it and some people just put it on their shelf. I mean, that's the nature of a really thick report. Like people love having really thick reports, but do they open it? <laughs> and do they open it more than once? Right, right. <laughs> so uh, we've created, we're starting to develop this, right, this yeah. campaign uh, <laughs> that will help folks learn how to leverage it, maybe even make their own information design. We're actually coming up with that workshop and um, we're coming out with some really interesting media pieces 
for the web. Like they already have a really comprehensive uh, platform that holds all this data. But what are ways that we can create vignettes to help activate the data? Um, and so that's been a very fun project that I've come into the new year doing. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You had mentioned something earlier about the the different type of graphs and how people understand them or don't. And, and then you've also talked about how color and icons and, you know, all sort of the design elements uh, play together. And I'm curious, when you are thinking about designing things for different audiences, when you are creating the graphs, how do you think about um, a graph that may be appropriate or easily read by one audience, but not another for, I, I don't have a great example off the top of my head, but like, mm-hmm. you know, a scatter plot, for example, like for, for some people, like scatter plots are really complicated. And although a couple of bar charts or line charts may be easier for them to read, maybe it doesn't give them the same, you know, visual of the relationship between the data. So I'm curious how you think about creating graphs that are maybe a little less standard uh, but maybe show the data in a, in a better way or just, you know, they're more engaging, um, you know, just the, just those different audiences and how you think about guiding people through these sort of different types of graphs. I think a lot of the, the, the graphs and diagrams that we're traditionally like used to seeing, I think we get from school, you know, just from word problems and math. Um, so like people love pie charts and bar graphs mm-hmm. and overuse them for that reason. But I do. So number one, I do think it's really important to try to diversify what type of charts and diagrams you use, because um, if you continuously use the same sort of visual rhetoric, it, it may make a really important data point seem like next to nothing because it's too familiar, you know, because um, that communication strategy is always key. But um, I, I do mm-hmm. think that since we're now in an era where adding motion to information design is becoming more accessible through um, the software that's available and um, different strategies you can use to, to add motion to things Um, that helps educate folks on what graphs mean. Like when I think about anything that has any um, nesting or layer, like if it's like a, a mosaic, it's a type of bar chart where like sections of it's like, Oh, well of these 100 Mm -hmm. voters, 50% 50% were women, right? And so that 50%, like having something grow in that, but then having all these other relational things that create the, the mosaic template um, is, I think, not always easy to read at a glance. But when you're using a more narrative-led through motion, through actual tangible motion, whether it's a GIF or a video, um, it allows people to understand the what story the data is telling. I've definitely seen some very, very complicated data visuals that I think are easily understood by the way that they move. Um, Some examples of that. I I definitely have seen some things on Behance uh, from folks that are charting large amounts of data over time. Um, Even Mm -hmm. the Create Lab at Carnegie Mellon, who I had the great fortune of doing some work with last year. That was pretty excellent. But they they were showing me their, um, they have this Earth earth Lapse, Earth Time Lapse lap software that they've developed where you they already have a lot of data that's inputted in there through the census but it just shows that data over time and through the motion of showing all that data it doesn't matter how complex it is a narrative begins by by what you see and so even though it may seem complex Mm. yeah i i do think motion is 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 creating more usability 
um, and bridging some of those literacy gaps um, for more complex structures or just different structures of information design. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the, the other side of your design firm. So you have the, the social impact work and, and obviously the contract work, but then you're also um, doing infographics workshops um, and you also have some tools that you've created and have some more coming out. So, so tell me a little bit about, you know, how you approach the teaching of infographics and um, who you are trying to teach and, and how, how you have that work. Absolutely. Um, well, I, I kind of have, Three basic principles. I, I definitely focus on grounding elements first, which has to do with like my conscious and responsible principles of design, um, making sure that I talk about power dynamics and design, definitely being mindful and sensitive to the way that you're portraying stuff, disaggregating your data, algorithm bias, all those sorts of things before we get into the next two sections, which are definitely the play and the practice. I've, I've been trying to find as many ways as possible to make the utilitarian cost of learning something different <laughs> a little bit more easy. <laughs> so so that's why I created the infographic wheel, mm-hmm. which is essentially <laughs> like a infographic library to help you look through different layouts. And I'm developing new tools to it's, it's along the same lines. Um, I'm not sure how deep I want to go into that because I haven't released anything about it yet, but I'm definitely combining it with some um, game board games that will, will make the learning pretty fun. So that's why I started doing uh, monthly seminars to kind of oh, test cool. some of these new toys that I'm making. And then, of course, the practice, the actual application of what you've learned, um, that is a key component because until you actually have to critically think through um, these you know, data problems, you will not, you know, especially in a space where you have someone that you can refer to, ask questions of, uh, get feedback from, then it's going to help you hone that skill. Um, and I also really love the the workshops because I require everybody mm-hmm. to draw. Oh, I love it. You know, because I, I... It doesn't sound like you have them on a computer. Uh-uh, no, I I really believe that anyone could do information design. And the, the first thing yeah. you have to do to make sure that everyone feels like they can access that space is by making it no tech or low tech. It's the first thing you have to do. And by also doing the play part, it helps build confidence mm-hmm. in folks' drawing skills. Like I have a couple of drawing games that I have people do to practice their icon drawing. And everybody in the room always ends up giggling and laughing and having a good time um, because of really these kind of complex ideas of what's a schema, like what uh, what will resonate with the most minimal representation, but in a gamified form so that you're not really, you're not really thinking. You're just literally putting something down on a paper and realizing that it still can read. And so just to build confidence through these small practices, um, they're just really playful. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah, it's been, it's been a great ride. Like I've done a lot of workshops, yeah. with a variety of different. That's really um, cool. Folks, like people from different backgrounds, mostly folks that have no creative background, but they're very interested in the genre of information design. Yeah. That's really cool. I want to ask one more question. It's it's a little bit of a pivot, but because you do a lot of work with um, in your community and doing social action, it's a uh, and and based off a lot of what you talked about um, at Info Plus a few months ago. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on um, 
the diversity and inclusion in the field of, of data visualization itself. Um, I know it's something that, that people talk about um, in the field, and I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on whether the field itself is diverse enough, whether it's inclusive enough. You know, inclusion can mean lots of different things, right? It could mean different skill sets and, and, you know, race and gender and demographics, but, but also, you know, geographically and, and all these sorts of things. So I'm just curious if you have any experience or thoughts on, on the field itself and as it continues to grow, what that means for people creating visual content as people become more and more familiar with, with data and data visualization. Yes. Um, I would definitely say that the field isn't diverse enough. And I mean it exactly the way you said it. Like there's the, the component of whether or not the folks are people of color or how many women so forth and so on, but also with who considers themselves to be information designers. I don't think that there's enough voices and perspectives or enough people that feel like they can be a part of that community. Um, so I don't think it's very inclusive, but it's getting there. It's getting there because a lot of people are being able to find their voice in uh, how they visualize data and information. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think about the homogeny of the leaders of information design and data visualization, they, what makes the homogeny so problematic is that there's a lot of issues concerning um, how much power we give to data and technology that has implicit bias built in. You know, um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, data for black lives. Um, there's some great literature mm-hmm. out there that has to do with algorithm bias. Uh, as, as we progress in society, mm-hmm. there is more emphasis that technology is the most objective solution, but we're not realizing that with the data that we're using, we might be misrepresenting, underrepresenting, uh, exploiting. We may be devaluing qualitative and human experience. Uh, we may be uh, just focusing too much on data that doesn't actually have anything to do, so it becomes misinformation. It doesn't have anything to do with the actual problem because it doesn't fully understand it from the way that it's been created. A perfect example of that is um, when it comes to policing in America, it has become more data-driven, but they're using crime data, like the data of who's been arrested, uh, to learn more things about crime and areas. But what we know is that who gets arrested is not always the person is, is, is disproportionate, right? It's disproportionate. Like the, they're between what has to do with like drug use. Uh, black people do not right. use drugs more often than white people do. <laughs> but who gets arrested for marijuana smoking <laughs> and will be sent to a penitentiary for the most mm-hmm. minor infraction right. or possession charge, right? So if we're going to use data that has to do with arrests to start creating crime profiles, then right. we, we're already approaching a very complex situation from the wrong angle. Like we're not even at the in the same place as the problem. You know, <laughs> like we're still operating within that implicit bias. And so I do think there are a lot more um, yeah. voices yeah. that are finding themselves in data visualization, information design, and are starting to use the language that we're used to hearing within like the kind of data world, just so that it can be accepted, which I hate that part, the respectability politics of it all. Like how do you really start to speak the the language of the folks that are the founders of the institution, right? So that you can help them understand so that the whole genre can change and be better. You know, because it oftentimes what I mm-hmm. find is you may figure out something that is true about 
a system, right? If, but if you don't know how to communicate that, then, or if that fact is not received at all because of the messaging, I think there is kind of a, a problem, you know, with, with the, the, that whole dialogue and how do we fix that? It's like, I'm going right back to my mm-hmm. summa thesis, um, <laughs> right? Talking about cultural competency. What's the best way to have that dialogue and um, how do we break down <laughs> respectability politics so that we can all work together? But yeah, it, I, I do love that now MIT has been hosting the data for black lives conference and it even being in that space makes a huge difference because it gives more um, for some folks, it helps give more credence um, even though the, the content is absolutely worthy of being heard. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I think that's right on. And I think um, a lot of people who are working with data have yet to sort of understand a lot of the issues that you've mentioned. But um, it's great. And I'll, and I'll link, of course, to the Data for Black Lives site and to your site and to these various projects that you mentioned. Um, it sounds like you're doing great work. And um, I look forward to watching it and, and seeing these new uh, tools and games that you have coming out. I'm always a big fan of data for games. So um, that's great. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. It was uh, it was great chatting with you. And thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode. Uh, I've got another great several episodes set up for the next few months. I'm really excited to bring them to you. Again, if you'd like to support the show, please consider sharing it on your social media networks or writing a review on iTunes or become a patron on my Patreon page where you can donate. Uh, just a few bucks a month really helps me uh, provide the great content, sound quality, and transcripts for the show. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.